You're listening to Exploring the Seasons of Life podcast, and this is episode 49. I'm Cindy McMillan, and today's guest is Dr. Linda Buchanan. Welcome to Exploring the Seasons of Life, a podcast for women with a big heart on a spiritual journey. Each week, join Cindy McMillan as she interviews coaches, spiritual explorers, and celebrants from all walks of life about beginnings, endings, and the messy bits in between. Self-love, well-being, and mindset are at the heart of our conversations because once you change the inside, the outside will begin to change as well. So friends, welcome back to Exploring the Seasons of Life podcast. My guest today is Dr. Linda Buchanan. She is a psychologist who has practiced psychotherapy for over 30 years. Additionally, she's been practicing as a wife for 37 years and a mother of two boys for over 23 years. She says she is practicing because there is always room for growth. Dr. Buchanan published her first book in 2019 and has published three self-help books in 2020. That was her pandemic projects. Welcome to the podcast. I so appreciate you being here. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate you asking me. It's quite an honor. And I will tell you, I, I love that part about practicing as, a, practicing as a wife for 37 years and a mother for 23 years, because you're right, that takes a lot of practice. That's right. It really does. Keep, keep practicing, keep growing, keep learning from our mistakes. That is the truth. So my favorite question of the podcast is, what does exploring the seasons of life mean to you personally or in your business? Uh, Well, I can answer that um, kind of both ways. At my age, I'm 61 years old, and um, I had a business that I founded for 25 years, and I sold it about three years ago. Actually, it's four years this month. (laughs) Wow. Four years ago, and now I just work as a um, kind of a consultant with them. So I've really shifted the nature of my my professional life. I've um, had a chance to start thinking again about kind of what is my vision as a professional and um, and as cutting back and being semi-retired, what do I really love to do? Uh, and then and just transitioning out of something I'd done so for so long and, and did love, working with a team of amazing um, therapists. And um, but in, um, in, in, in pausing to oh and on top of all that, my, my sons, as you mentioned earlier, um, not needing me as much at 21 and 23. So there's been a lot of space to, to to think about what do I want to do with myself going forward. Um, and some of that is to be determined. But one part that I have found I really enjoy is writing. And I have a couple of blogs, uh, one for therapists and one for just the general population. I've written a book and have found that to be really rewarding. Gardening, um, you know, it's just kind of exciting to be in a time of life where everything's not determined. I would love to start with your journey and how you became interested in psychology. Okay, well, um, well, I started uh, studying psychology in um, in college, but really, I think if um, if I'm going to answer that honestly, we're going to have to go all the way back to I'm three years old, and I have a memory when I was three that I like to tell. where, and this was a long time ago, um, I was, I, and I think I must have been about three because I was in the car with my parents 
And I was in the back seat, but I was standing on the floorboard because this was before the time of car seats. And my parents are sitting in this car that has a bench, like a bench seat, as they used to have in the old days. And I had my head leaned over kind of in between them. And they were talking about how to pronounce the word pecan or pecan, depending on how you pronounce it. And my dad was from South Georgia and he said pecan. And my mom was from Atlanta and she said pecan. And you know how it is with couples sometimes when they start an argument over a daily thing. I mean, just, you know, just any old thing. And then it starts to escalate. And I think in my little mind, I noticed that the tension was rising in the car. And I can just picture my little head bobbing back and forth between them as they're arguing. And I, um, I piped up finally and said, why can't we just say pecan or pecan? You see what I did there? <laughs> I found the compromise <laughs> between the two. And they immediately um, stopped arguing, turned around, looked at me and laughed and all the tension dispelled. And so I think that day, my fate to become a, um, a helper, a therapist was sealed. <laughs> I love that story because a lot of times those things happen in our childhood that we go on to grow up and, and work in that field. When I was on your website, which is wonderful, by the way, I saw that you're also interested in ambivalence. Now, am I saying that right? I'm not saying that right. Oh, I am saying that right. Ambivalence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when did you decide to specialize in that? I mean, was there a specific point in your um, psychology career or did that also start early? Uh, Many, many factors. I I, I do think that um, some of it goes all the way back to childhood where I would try to be the peacemaker and so when there's two sides to any to anything, to any argument between people or even when we're torn on the inside, a lot of times the wisdom is somewhere in between, like my my compromise on how to say the word pecan, which is what I say now. My mom won. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I think that I was sort of primed in childhood to look for compromises uh, but what I would do without much wisdom is I would run around to, to different people in the family and try to help them see it from the other person's point of view, which doesn't make friends of the person you're trying to help them see the other person's point of view. So my attempts at helping were laced with anxiety because sometimes I would be the one that would get that they'd end up getting mad at me because <laughs> they thought I was taking the other person's side when I was just trying to pull people together. But um, and so I went into psychology, I think, um, somewhat because of wanting to learn more about how, how to do that in a way that um, worked and without feeling that anxiety. And then I started working with people in my profession and found out that when, even when people come in and ask for help, they pay you good money, give, um, spend valuable time with you, and still don't do the things that you know would help them, that there's something you know, maybe even more important to pay attention to. And that's when I became fascinated with the reasons why we don't change, which I kind of began to conceptualize through the lens of ambivalence. And ambivalence is just when you have two different feelings about the same thing at the same time, which is normal and healthy. It's um, because we have complicated brains and we can, you know, look at things from different angles, but we can also get stuck in it. And generally, whenever any of us is trying to change something, 
if we haven't already changed it, clearly there's a part of us that's not ready, doesn't want to or something, and therefore there's ambivalence. And um, I uh, got, um, I started working with people with eating disorders. And of course, I really cut my teeth in understanding ambivalence working with them because the very thing that helped them feel like they could cope with life, the eating disorder, was also something that was um, so unhealthy and could even cause them to die. So, you know, that is extreme ambivalence. So I learned lots of strategies on how to help people when they were ambivalent. So in talking about strategies, because I actually find this very fascinating how even for myself, I can say I want to do something, but I don't whether it's follow through on it or follow the strategies or, or whatever it may be. And then I end up not doing the one thing that I said I wanted to do. So I find this fascinating. What have you found or where do you start if someone says they want to change, but they are resistant or just unmotivated? I get really curious with myself too, when this is, you know, this happens to me too. I get really curious with the reasons for not doing the thing you're telling yourself you want to do. So that's one thing is I think it's really important to be curious and say, well, um, you know, why might I not have done that yet? For instance, I was working with someone who needed to make a doctor's appointment, kept saying she was going to make the doctor's appointment, kept putting it off and kept being really critical with herself week after week as she didn't make it. You know, what's wrong with me? That's so dumb. I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. And that's the way she would handle it every day. I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. And it never happened. But once um, we paused and got more curious about, well, wonder why you're not, um, she, she slowed down. And she began to realize that um, she, she actually had a couple of friends who'd gotten some bad news in the past year or two when they went to the doctor. And without even really bringing it to the forefront front of her mind, it's like the back end of her mind was saying, Ooh, I don't want to do that. I'm scared. So a lot of times we have things running in the back end of our mind that is really controlling our behavior. In the front end of our mind is maybe the superficial thought like make the doctor's appointment. And we have to integrate the two because otherwise we're ambivalent. There's the part of us that knows that it makes sense to make the doctor's appointment. But then there's this part that might be quieter, but still has a lot of power as to why we're not. So that's one thing. One thing is to stop and be curious about the why not. The other thing is to examine the relationship you have with yourself when you are trying to do anything new or change anything. And if you don't have a kind and compassionate and gracious relationship with yourself, the way you might with anybody else, then you're probably going to get stuck. Just like if we try to whip somebody into action, they might not do it. So I ask people to really pay attention to the nature of their thoughts and the tone of their thoughts. Believe it or not, we do um, speak to ourselves with certain tones. It can be a kind or it can be a critical tone. And And then see if that can shift to a more effective way of talking to ourselves and be in relationship with ourselves. Yeah, I, I really do think that we can be the harshest critics on ourselves right. when we're wanting to, well, it doesn't even have to be a change. It can be anything, but yeah, we can be really harsh critics. And uh, a girlfriend of mine, she always talks about just pretend like we're talking to our best friend, you know, that's we it. We wouldn't talk to our best friend mean or negative. You know, we would talk to him, like you just said, with that kindness and compassion. Right. And patience 
and curiosity. And people don't realize the power of the relationship that we have within. I mean, we do have a relationship with ourselves that is um, just like any other relationship. You need to spend time with it. You need to be choose your words carefully. You need to have patience. And people don't realize that oftentimes. And it actually is probably the most important relationship we'll ever have. And it's certainly the most long-term relationship <laughs> that we'll ever have. Absolutely. Now, I know you've talked a, a little bit about some, some strategies, but do you have any other tips that you can give to, to, to our listeners about breaking through that mental chatter? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, well, the first thing I do is I educate people on the fact of, or on the concept of ambivalence. It's not apathy and it's not ambiguity, which a lot of times people get those words mixed up. Um, it is simply feeling two different things at the same time, which is very human. And, and then I oftentimes educate people that we might have ambivalence when we have conflict in normal needs. So for instance, if everybody, it's a human universal, it's a universal human need to want connection with people, to want to feel love and connection. But if we've had experiences that taught us not to trust, then we also have this need for safety. That's also a universal need. So we now we have a conflict in needs. We have the need that says connect with people and we have the other need that says be safe. People aren't safe. So this is just an example. So of course then when we have a conflict in needs, we're going to have ambivalence. One part wanting us to move forward, maybe in relationships and the other part wanting to avoid. So we have to sort of get to the heart of the matter sometimes when we're stuck. Like, do we have a conflict in needs? And it can even be, I mean, it can be things that are not nearly that uh, deep as well. It can be, uh, for instance, if, here's one of my strategies then, is to find a way that honors both. Find a way that somehow honors the part of me that is desiring connection and the part of me that's afraid. And so that might be working out, trying to, discern which people to trust and which people I can't trust. But it can be even more minor than that. Like I usually walk my dog about a half an hour in the afternoons. And sometimes I'm too sick to walk and I don't walk. Uh, Sometimes it's, you know, the weather's too bad and I don't walk. Sometimes I feel great and I do walk and I never have any ambivalence in those situations. It's pretty much yes or no. Sometimes I'm just a little tired. And then I notice this ambivalence rise up. Like part of me wants to walk the dog. And part of me doesn't. And so one strategy that I use a lot for myself and recommend is just find the compromise in between the two, even mathematically. So if I usually walk 30 minutes and tonight I'm ambivalent, I'm just going to walk 15. And that way, each part of me gets something they want, but neither part feels like they're having to do the full measure of what they don't want. So both parts get honored. I love that. Because, I mean, that your story about, you know, walking the, using that example is walking the dog, but that can be used for so many things. And maybe it's around exercise or, or a diet or something like that. Right, right. Trying to find, yeah, speaking of um, like how we eat and the relationship we have with our bodies and, and food, a lot of times we're all or nothing. And that is never going to be a long-term it's never going to work long term. We have to find a way to 
sort of honor, and I, I like to use that word, honor both the part that wants to make changes, maybe thinks that that would be healthier, and the part that wants um, to feel comfort with food. or and, and you just can't decide that one part is right and one part is wrong, or you'll be stuck. You'll be swinging back and forth. And that's, that's probably what most people do is they swing back and forth between being fully 100% charging ahead on some plan and then just falling off of it. That actually describes what I've done for most of my life. Most, you know, I'm either, so many I'm either on or off. <laughs> yes, so many people. You have a quote on your website by Albert Einstein, and it says, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. And I love that because the podcast is about beginnings, endings, and those messy bits in between. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes those messy bits in between is where the growth happens. Yes. Can can we talk a little bit about failure in terms of growing? And I'm, and I'm using that, that quote is, is to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's a similar quote too um, by Edison. It's um, I don't, I don't know it. Ex- I don't have it memorized, but it's something like I've failed 10,000. No, I have not failed 10,000 times in his attempt to invent maybe the light bulb. If I've got that right. But um, <laughs> I've not failed 10,000 times. I've found, I have succeeded in finding 10,000 ways it won't work. I love it. (laughs) I do too. So it's all mindset. But if you're perfectionistic, which um, I think there's a lot of mistaken belief, and especially in our work ethic culture about what perfectionism is and trying your best and well, just you do your best. That's what that's what I heard growing up. But I had no idea what my best was. That felt like there was no ceiling. Does that mean I can always do a little more or work a little harder? Um, I like the message that incorporates more um, work hard and play hard, mm-hmm. not just always do your best when you're working hard. Cause I don't, who knows where that ends. And so I do work hard, but I want to see myself as somebody who plays hard too. Well, I think I'm getting off just a bit from the original question, but the, for me that led to perfectionism and perfectionism carries with it this belief that you're really not acceptable when you make mistakes. I never considered the idea that mistakes were a good part of the prop process until much later in my life. And if you do have that perfectionism, you're going to kind of do some of that all or nothing we were talking about. You're going to rev forward and then you're going to get exhausted or you're going to feel shame when you don't reach a particular goal that's just the way you thought it had to be um, rather than living in the process. So like you said, the process can be messy. (laughs) There can be bits and pieces that don't go well. But if you're, if you're, if you're always, if you're trying to um, recognize that every little bit is informative, every bit teaches you something, which it couldn't have happened if you were afraid to start or if you were afraid to mess up. When you're afraid to make mistakes, you might ignore mistakes. And then a mistake that might have been very corrective and, and, and put you on a path that was actually much more helpful might get ignored until it's much further down the line and harder to shift. Yeah. So just recognizing that life is a process. There's a book by um, it's called the gap and the gain. I think it's Dan Sullivan and it's called the gap and the gain. And um, I love his concept. He says that we can live in either the gap or the gain, regardless of our circumstances. The gap is when we're thinking about where we should be, what we should have done, what should have happened. We compare ourselves to others. 
or we can live in the gain, which is what did I learn? What have I got? Not what don't I have yet? What have I got? Where have I succeeded? What can I do today? And and he even refers back to Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book called, I'm sorry, I should have, I didn't know I was going to go here. Viktor Frankl was in a, um, a Nazi prison camp and um, he was actually a doctor there. And he studied the people who died, not who just died due to exposure or I'll just say due to exposure, not, not that they were sent to die or to be killed. And he studied the difference and, and he concluded that those who maintained hope by living in the game lived and those who lived in the gap died. And he believed, I don't know that I can say this. I don't know I could, if I could have thought this way, but he actually believed that you can find peace even as a prisoner in conditions like that. Whoa, I'm not putting that on anybody, but it is, it is something that I ponder when I'm feeling um, in the gap. That gap and that gain, I haven't ever heard it described like that. And that's perfect because I almost think that gain, that gain, as you're saying, is the positive side of thinking. Yes. And then that gap may be the more negative side, pessimistic side. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. And, and I have heard and where I've read articles and everything where um, Victor Frankel talked about that living as a as a prisoner. Yes, mm-hmm. Dr. Buchanan, what is the ultimate message you want to pass on to others? Now, that could be regarding this ambivalence or or something else. What is come comes up for you when I say that? Uh, I, well, the first thing I've already mentioned is um, I just think it's so important to pay attention to the relationship with you have you have with yourself and to um, live according to your own values even in the way you treat yourself. So if your value is to be kind and you don't treat yourself with kindness, then you're not living according to your value with yourself. And then that's going to end up causing some problems along the way. So paying attention, as I've already mentioned, to the relationship you have with yourself. Understanding that it is hard for us to live in the gap. I'm not saying that, I mean, gain. I'm not saying that like it's an easy thing to do. In fact, our brains are actually hardwired to focus more on the negative and the positive because there's much more survival value in noticing danger than there is in noticing something that's pleasant, right? So for instance, it's better to know where the bear lives than where the daffodils grow. If you're walking in the woods and you see a bear, it's going to light up your brain and it's, you're going to remember everything about that situation. But if you're walking in the woods and you see some fl- pretty flowers, you may or may not even remember where they were. But through strategies like living in the game, turning your mind, you can actually overcome our more instinctual brain. I used to feel guilty that I was a glass half empty, but then I found out that's actually how your brain works. You have to on purpose move to the positive. So be patient with yourself as you're learning to do that. Um, But just catching your thoughts, any thoughts that tend to be in the gap, like I wish I had, or I can't believe, or I should, and just go, oh, okay, I wonder if I can switch that to, to a thought of gratitude, at least for the moment, just to give myself a little oomph, a little lift, because that will make my day feel better. Knowing that we're already good enough, even though we can always improve. I think that that circles back to the relationship we have with ourselves, that if you constantly feel like you're in the gap, that you're not good enough, maybe you've been taught that or assumed that growing up, 
it's going to be really hard to have peace and have what you want in life. If you can wrap your head around, if you can wrap your head around the idea that you are already good enough and you can improve, that both of those things can be true at the same time, then you might have the patience to actually and the kindness to actually get there. Uh, I think those are kind of my favorite, I don't know, inspirational ideas. <sighs> yeah, and those were those are excellent messages to pass on to people that we're already good enough. That's perfect. And I was going to ask you, if you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell her about the season of life you're in now? Um, so when I was 18, I was definitely completely in a perfectionistic mindset and a little bit of a, I'm not good enough. Um, even though, you know, life was pretty good for me. I, I wasn't connected to, I was more in the gap, always about what I could do more of how I should do better, how I shouldn't make mistakes, how I should work harder. And I put almost all my value. I didn't realize it at the time on achievement. Uh, so what I would tell her, I think overall is um, I don't want you to have to work that hard. You can achieve plenty. You will achieve plenty and you can still play. You can still carve out time for play. Um, and I didn't know that then. So I would really encourage her to, to have balance. And about my time now, uh, I think it would just be, Watch me now. <laughs> Watch me because I am going to have that balance and I want you to enjoy it, little kid and me. Let's do this. Let's let's accomplish some stuff. Let's write a workbook, but let's play too. Oh, I love that. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you had sold your business, but you still are active in, in doing other things to work with people. Is that That's correct, right? I have a small private practice. I lead several consultation groups where I'm training other therapists and dealing with ambivalence. I lead a few groups and I write. So if somebody wanted to um, work with you, could you give them your social media, your website? Sure. Um, the best way to get in touch with me is through my website. And it's um, www.lindapalkbuchanan.com. Buchanan.com. And there's a contact. You can email me through my website. I've got all kinds of free things under free resources tab. And then I've got other products that I sell my books and my workbooks and, and just, just lots of free uh, webinars. So um, I sure hope you'll check it out. And I'd love to hear from any of your listeners that um, would like to continue this conversation in one way or another. All right. Thank you so much. I will make sure all of that is in the show notes. And I, again, I just want to tell you, thank you for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Cindy. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us this week on Exploring the Seasons of Life podcast. Make sure to visit our website, CynthiaMacMillan.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you could simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out as well. Until next time, live inspired.